0: Hey tennis fans and welcome to another edition of Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And while we have six Canadians in the singles field on both the men's and women's side, and one of them, uh, born and also raised from Toronto, Canada, he qualified for his first main draw Grand Slam appearance at the age of 29 and joins us uh, for the episode. Stephen Diaz, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, congratulations on your first ever birth to a, a main draw of a Grand Slam
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me here.
2: Steven, qualifying for the first main draw of a slam at the age of 29 is a pretty remarkable story. Uh, you've had a few days now to let that sink in since qualifying ended. How does it feel and uh, how do you stay motivated to continue that journey hopefully this week?
1: Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a really, really happy day for me on Thursday. Um, if we would have spoken on Thursday, I would have told you one of, it was one of my happiest tennis days of my life. But now actually I'm really just focused on playing tomorrow and now I'm still happy with the result, of course, but now I just want to go for more and now I'm just pretty focused on I'm doing my best tomorrow and trying to, trying to catch that win. And, you know, for,
0: for some people who don't know you, you've, you've actually been on tour for, for quite a long time. Uh, you started off as a pro in 2008 and uh, predominantly playing in the Futures and, and Challengers events. And uh, you've really, like, stuck with it because this was your 16th try to, to get in a, a main draw. How have you just been able to, to stay at it and, and persist for, for so long? And, and did you always hold that belief that you could crack a main draw?
1: Yeah, I've always always known I have it in me. I think most of the players playing slams and challengers, qualifying slams and challengers, um, I think everyone knows that the level is so equal that there's only really small things that make a difference between players, I think, in the top 50. And I think between someone like 250 or seven in the world, I think you can't, if you see them hitting or practicing, you probably won't be able to see a big difference. I think that the gap between those different rankings is, is really, really small. So since I was really young, I, I know that I could make it. That's what my family, my friends, my coach, everyone makes me believe. So that's what's really been keeping me going on until today. And hopefully maybe even tomorrow I can win my first main draw match and that would be great. What,
2: what do you know about your first round opponent, Mackenzie um, McDonald? And then uh, if we look past that, and I know players often don't like to look ahead in the draw, but... We couldn't help it especially when we saw that the second round match <laughs> might be against a guy who's got 93 career wins uh at I know. arrows so how do you feel about round one and then after that if you wouldn't mind indulging us about what it feels like to potentially have to face nadal
1: well i'll start with Mackenzie. then nadal is another case <laughs> Well, i actually haven't never practiced them i haven't seen him that much i think i I when US Open comes up or Rogers Cup comes up I'm around North America but if not I try to play a little bit more around Europe because I'm since I'm based in Spain it's it's a bit easier for me to fly and we haven't actually seen each other that much so I've seen a few matches of him on on internet with my coach to study for tomorrow to see how how he plays and I think it's gonna be a tough match I think it might be a long match on both sides we have similar games I think I might play more matches on clay than him he likes to stick more on, on hardcore but um if i see his game he actually has a he has a pretty good game to play on on clay court and yeah and as you said the winner of that match will most likely be facing rafa so yeah i'm one of those players that when, once the draw is out these last few years i don't want to know who i'm playing on the next match but this was just impossible this time <laughs> getting messages from everywhere just saying yeah well Hopefully you win. That way we can see they can play Rafa. It would be so cool. So awesome. Like, okay, yeah. I already found out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, what, Hard to hide that, that one. What, what does that make you feel when you, when you think about that prospect?
1: I'm trying to use it as a motivation. I know, honestly, it's going to be a really tough match. Just playing him here, I think he's, if I'm not wrong, he's won 12 times. That's right. I think. Yeah. And he's one of the most, he's one of the favorite players winning here again. I think anyone wants to play him. I think it's a dream for any player to play one of these top three, Roger, um, Rafa, or Novak. And probably even a little bit more against um, Rafa and Roger, in my opinion. And I think if you want to play him, you would like to play him anywhere else, but not here. <laughs> because if it's somewhere else, I think if you have a small chance of beating him, it's probably easier to beat him in, in best out of three and not best out of five. And especially where he has won 12 times. But I'm going to use that as a, as a motivation for tomorrow to be able to play against him. And, and yeah, I'll use that as a motivation and I'll just try my best tomorrow to get the win.
2: Hey, you've got three more wins than he does so far there this year. So remember that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Yep>. definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to ask,
0: since you, you do have a Spanish background as well as Canadian, is, uh, is he one of your, your tennis idols or someone that you, you've looked up to in the past?
1: Well, I think Spanish or not, um, with the Spanish back or not, I think Rafa is probably almost everyone's idol in, in the tennis world. I think, as I said before, these top three, it doesn't matter who you play against. I think they're a or they're role model for every player to look up to them. Rafa with his – the way he fights, his attitude Roger with his, his talent, and Novak, I think he has everything. But, yeah, I've known him actually since, I'm, since I was, like, eleven. Rafa, he was like, I think he was 16 at that point, 11, 12, he was like 16, 17. I've known him from a good amount of years. I've practiced with him a few times in the past. And yeah, it would just, it would probably be a dream for any player to play him on this court here, even though it's really, really tough to beat him, to be honest. But I'll try to win my first match. And then if I'm lucky enough to play against him,
0: it will be amazing. Just uh, circling back uh, for, for many Canadian fans who, who aren't really familiar with you yet and becoming familiar because now you, you are in a main draw. Could you just tell us a, a bit about your, your tennis background? Because I, I know you were, you, you are from Toronto, but you also grew up uh, playing in Spain. Just uh, when, when did you begin playing tennis competitively, and, and when did you
1: have those aspirations to, to become a pro? Well, I began. I started to play in Canada. With my older brother and my father, they played for fun. My father has a hobby. Then my brother was just any other kid playing on at any club. And my first coach was actually Danny DaCosta. He's well-known in Canada from, from tennis and back in the day um, in squash. And then from then, we moved to Spain. He actually moved after with us for like a year or two to, as an experience to uh, be in Europe living. And then from then on, I think most of the tournaments in Spain at a younger age until I was like, in 10, 11, I was pretty much winning everything I played, I would win. And then from then on, I remember going to one international, no, national, a big national tournament in Spain. One year younger, I was like 11, it was under 12. And I did like, I think I did semifinals or final, and no one knew me. And I think from, from then on, um, I didn't really take it that serious at that point. It started to get more serious when I got my first scholarship in Madrid when I was 11. I left home at the age of 11 already. And then is when I started to get a bit more serious. And from then on, I've been just dedicated to play tennis and away from home all these years. So so that's a bit of my story. And and now I'm here. Do you get back to Canada very often? Have you
2: got family still in the uh, Toronto area?
1: Unfortunately, well, my grandmother lived there. She passed away a couple of years ago, but I had my grandmother, my my mom. She has a, a brother. And my father, she, he has a sister. So, yeah, I have a few cousins, aunts, and uncles. So, and I don't get to be that often. I can't even be that often at my home here with my wife. So, and my parents, they live in the south of Spain. I live in Barcelona. So, I can't really see them. So, I actually only go to Canada when the Challengers or the Rogers Cup is on. And unfortunately, I can't really be there that often, to see my family there.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, that couldn't happen this year yeah. for uh, COVID related yeah. reasons, of course. Yeah, um, I would
1: have loved. Steven,
2: I was just going through some of your results and the Futures and Challenger level. Seems like you've had so much success there. I believe 38 finals between those two levels. Um, 25 of those looked like they were on clay court, 13 on hard court. How would you describe your level of comfort on those two surfaces? Is it safe to say that clay is your, your number one?
1: No, actually not. Last year, year and a half, I think I've been playing more on hard court. But it's hard for me to say. So many people have asked me, like, not even my opponents; they didn't really know where where I played better on. Since I think I played more tournaments on clay court, clay court, because I played when I was at a younger age. I played most of my tournaments on on clay, and in Europe, it's true that here in France, Italy, or even Czech Republic, there's a lot of challengers on on clay court. So that's probably the reason why I might play a little more on clay than on hard. But actually, I couldn't really say if you ask me right now what I prefer. Hardcore clicker, I might say clay court right now, but you ask me in two or three weeks, I've won a tournament on hard court or I'm in semifinals at a challenger, I'll probably say hard court. But I can't, I can't really, I can't really say what what I prefer. It actually depends on on who I play against. If I play someone from, I don't know, somewhere that clay court is not that off, you don't play on off that often, I'll probably say I prefer playing on clay court against that opponent, and then the other way around as well. But I, now I think. Now I think everyone, it's not like 10, 15 years ago, you would play someone from Asia on clay court and you would say, oh, that's a good match for me to win, you know? Because I think the surfaces on a hard court, they're slower and slower. It's easier to play. If you can, there's more rallies. So I think everyone has learned how to play on, on clay court better now. So now there's not much of a difference, I think.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm curious just uh. The conditions right now at Roland Garros, because obviously we're, we're in a u- unique situation where it's being played into the fall, late September and, and early October. And uh, you bring up uh, the weather forecast and we're looking at rainy, rainy, cold days, um, some tough kind of wet conditions. I, I've heard yeah. different players say, say obviously that, that that the ball has changed as well, that it's a heavier ball. Uh, what do you think about these conditions, and do you have any opinion on who it might suit overall in this tournament?
1: Well I think the condition, the conditions obviously are different because now we're not even in summer anymore and and yeah well actually when when the qualifying is on in May, June, it, it really depends on the day. Sometimes it can be like 30 degrees or 25 and the next day it can be like 15. Mm. But I think right now the weather forecast for these couple of weeks ahead it looks like it's not going to be above 15 at any point, pretty much. So I think in between that and the ball, obviously the the tournament's going to be a bit different. But I think Rafa, as I've read in the newspapers, he's not really happy with the conditions. But I've seen him play at places or ATPs with balls that no one was happy with. And he won the tournament anyway. So I think, I really think that these guys are so good. That doesn't matter where they play, or whether balls or anything that... I really hope he's not in the final. Does that mean that me or Mackenzie have beaten him? But <laughs> but I think he'll be in the last rounds for sure. So I think these guys are so good, these, like Roger, Novak, and Rafa, that doesn't matter where they play or what time of the year. Or I think that it doesn't really make a difference for them.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: might make a difference between playing Roger and Rafa. He, obviously, Roger probably prefer these conditions and these balls. Is not, they don't they don't they're not that bouncy you know Rafa likes to play a lot of spin on his back end or even with Novak if if they're playing here uh, like the lower though they won't suffer as much as as normally and this year I think Rafa is probably going to play every match indoor as well on the center court and I think he doesn't like that as much as well so but I don't doubt that he'll be one of the last ones playing here in the tournament for sure these guys well,
2: as Canadian tennis podcasters, we hope those Wilson tennis balls drive him crazy. And uh, yeah. uh, we, wish, <laughs> we wish you uh, all the success. And, and regardless of how far you go or what happens next, Stephen, uh, big congratulations on, on qualifying and, and just the perseverance that you've shown throughout your career, I think is a lesson for young Canadian or young tennis uh, players anywhere to really uh, take note of. And um, yeah, we both, uh, both want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Thanks a lot. Thank
0: you very much.
2: Steve All right,
1: Stephen Diaz. Okay,
0: take Good care. Luck. There you have it, Canadian uh, Stephen Diaz, 16th try, Sweet 16 qualifying uh, for his first ever main draw uh, at a Grand Slam, and uh, really a great story because yeah, if you look at his career, and I was surprised to say he he wasn't necessarily more comfortable on clay versus hardcore. But uh, this has got uh, this is a player who's kind of taken the hard route, just grinding through futures and challengers, getting enough like quality results there uh, to always give himself a shot at a Grand Slam. And and now he's finally arrived uh, at Roland Garros with an opportunity to face uh, Mackenzie McDonald in the first round. And who knows, maybe a chance to face uh, Rafael Nadal in the second would be an incredible story.
2: I love how he was talking about it too. You could tell there were times in the conversation where he was kind of saying like, yeah, who has a chance against Rafa here? But then there were moments where he started kind of, you could tell like almost talking himself up about, you know, the balls and the conditions and, yeah. and how Rafa was speaking this week. And, you know, and that's the the competitiveness. And that's the, the nature of being a professional athlete is, yeah, you've got to go in there giving yourself some chance. And, uh, and I think he stacks up well against Mackenzie McDonald on a, on a clay court and, yeah, even though he said he's very comfortable on hard courts as well. And in fact, his last five finals at the Futures or Challenger level have been on hard courts. Um, clearly, he's grown up on the dirt. And so, um, you know, that would just make this story even sweeter if he could win a round. And, and regardless of what happens there, just the ranking points, the prize money for someone like that, that, as you said, has, has been grinding it out and, and sticking it out throughout, you know, lots of ups and, and lots of, of downs as well. Um, that would be huge for him.
0: Yeah, that would be massive. I mean, prize money alone, just to get into a grand slam main draw is such such a huge difference. So I'm sure that's done, uh, you know, great, great success for his career already at 29. And I think he still has several years to to go because it feels like he's really hitting his peak in terms of his tennis level. Um, a lot of tennis to get to because we are doing a full roll on Garros. Pre- Here we go. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to start on on the women's side. And we'll start on the Canadian side because we have two of them in the field and Layla Fernandez and Jeannie Bouchard. And one interesting element, I think, is normally we're used to North American players not really having a comfort on the clay court surface. And um, Layla Fernandez last year, of course, this is going back almost a year and a half ago, she was playing the juniors and winning the junior French Open title, which is an Amazing story in its own right. But uh, you look at how far she's come in just that span of about 15, 16 months to now be inside the top 100 at the age of 18. And you have to think of what her confidence level must be like in her game. going into the French Open now compared to last year where she was still playing juniors. It's amazing. Yeah.
2: I was going to say what a difference from 12 months ago, but you're right. It's been more like 16 months since, yeah. uh, since she won that junior, uh, trophy, but yeah, what a rise, what an ascent for Layla Fernandez who we've talked to about, I want to say a half dozen times since then. And just the, the growth and the maturity in her game and, and her mentality and what she's accomplished since then between the, the big fed cup win over Benchich and beating Sloan Stevens and, um, and, and pushing players that are ranked so much higher than her. She's inside the top 100 or, or 100 right now, and, and she totally belongs there, if, if not higher. And she just recently turned 18 years old. She got the first uh, main draw slam win of her professional career at the U.S. Open on her, over Verzvanareva, former U.S. Open finalist. And uh, so she's not intimidated by anybody, and she's going up against the 31st seed Uh, here at the French Open, Magda, Lynette. And, uh, you know, beyond that, I mean, Kvitova perhaps in round three if she were to get there. But I I wouldn't place any huge expectations on Leila, but I also wouldn't put any barriers or restrictions on what she can do either.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. I I look at that first-round match, I think pretty winnable, Lynette, pretty good Polish player, but no major weapons, not a, a serious, serious threat, and I think that's a great opportunity. If you're probably picking out a seeded player that you want to face first, it might be, you know, someone in that 30 30 range, so 31st seed, Magda Lynette, this is definitely a winnable opportunity for Layla Fernandez, and as you said, I, I think a win here at Roland Garros would be a, a huge, huge success, and we've already seen that success, and she has that comfort level playing Grand Slams uh, from just flying. That as a few weeks ago, uh, so I, I certainly think it's an opportunity. Same for Jeannie Bouchard. Um, look, she to me, earn this wild card to to play the French Open. I I think people look at maybe her fame and popularity and said would think maybe she was just granted that for for that reason. But that's not the case. I mean, we saw her make that finals run in Istanbul, and obviously she's playing a much, much better brand of tennis, some of the best tennis we have seen her play in probably a couple of years at least and uh, gets another opportunity here. Unfortunately, the result might have already come through by the time you listen to this podcast, but uh, she has a first round match against Anna Kalinskaya. And um, I think a victory here for Jeannie Bouchard, just even uh, a main draw win would would be a success um, for me at least. Big
2: time. Yeah, big time compared to where she was a year or so ago, two years ago even. Um, she's having a resurgence. You know, Jeannie's back and what the ceiling is there remains to be seen. But she's playing with renewed confidence and that partnership with uh, Renee Stubbs is clearly yielding some nice benefits. And uh, as you mentioned, this will probably be live by the time that match is ended. So we won't dwell on it too much, but should she get to the second round, she might face Diana Yastremska, um, who has been, you know, a, a, for lack of a better expression, like a total disaster lately mm-hmm. and uh, splitting with coach Sasha Bajan. And when I spoke to Diana at the U S open where you and me were both covering the event, she said she's totally confused about her game right now. She didn't even want to take any questions about her game. And that was after her first round win in New York. You'd think a player would be happy to talk about how they were feeling and how their game was going. So when a player admits they're confused and not sure about their game, that definitely doesn't bode well um, for where their mentality is right now. And I think that could be a nice opportunity for Jeannie, who's a much more experienced player as well. She's been through those, those um, tough moments. And she, she knows and she's feeling and you can tell that she knows she's on the upswing right now. So, uh, I mean, it might all be for naught, depending on how the first round goes. But, uh, you know, again, I think Jeannie's got a good shot to perhaps win a couple matches under her belt here, which would be a huge plus. And, you know, those are our two Canadian uh, women's singles players, Layla and Jeannie. We don't have Bianca there. And maybe we can talk about that for a moment. What a, what a disappointment for her and a disappointment for her fans that not only is she not playing Paris, but she's shut down her entire 2020 season now.
0: Yeah, I think this was something that had been probably rumored about uh, within the past few weeks, that is Bianca going to shut down her season? And, and we saw her, you know, have her name pulled out of Rome. And I think when that happened, we got the sense that she's not going to play the French Open if she's not signing up for a clay court event prior to it because she hasn't played any tennis. Um, but obviously with the coaching team making that decision to pull the plug on 2020, I think part of that decision is the fact that it, is a pandemic year it 's not going to cost her anything in the rankings, so they 're going to take additional time to focus on her health and training. This is what she said in her message. Um, but at, at the same time, I think we have to be concerned that it we're going on now a full year uh, since she 's played a WTA match so if that 's the amount of damage that was done to her body from that 2019 season i 'd be concerned. I think she did suffer a setback in the training this year when she was looking to make a return. Uh, had some type of issue with her foot. But uh, you have to wonder if this is just going to be an ongoing issue throughout Bianca's career dealing with injuries. Um, so I hope this extra time can, can help her come back, you know, stronger than ever in 2021. I know that's what she's hopeful for. When I saw her in person down at Niagara Falls, I wouldn't have known she was someone who was injured. I will say that. Um, but, yeah, still not ready to go, which is obviously a disappointment for Canadian fans.
2: Yeah, it's big time concerning uh, for me and for most, I think. Um, and, and after what she did in 2019, there was so much optimism to see her build on that, to see her maybe cement herself in the top five, top 10 of the rankings and, and continue that huge success we saw last year. Um, I, I don't fully buy the, the COVID, I'm not going to say the, the excuse, but that angle of her pulling out of events, um, I, I really think it is injury related. And, um, you know, we'd love to have her on the podcast. We're trying to get her back on the podcast to, um, you know, elaborate a little bit on, on what she's been feeling, what she's been going through. And, uh, I mean, now she's got months ahead of her, you know, to, uh, to heal it properly and to get back to training. And, uh, you know, we can only hope for 2021 that uh, the tennis is in a better place, that Bianca's in a better place, because when she is, it gives Canada our, for sure, our best threat at, at any tournament in, uh, in singles men or women right now Um, we should mention also amongst the women we've got uh, three that are playing doubles in Paris Gabby Dabrowski of course who's playing with Yelena Ostapenko and I really like that duo we've talked about them before a nice mix of of offense and and the doubles experience with Gabby there and uh, Ostapenko's firepower and uh, and Gabby's always had her best results at the French Open winning in mixed doubles uh, three years ago making the finals in 18 and 19 as well so uh, although there's no mix this year, I do think in, in women's doubles, she's a big threat there. Sharon Fishman as well, playing with Katerina Bondarenko, who she's had some success with earlier this year. Uh, she could actually face Gabby. The two of them could face each other in, in round three if, if they both get there. And Leila Annie Fernandez with the wild card, and she's playing with Diane Perry, an 18-year-old from France. So we've got three entries in doubles, and it'd uh, be great to see some success in, in that draw as well.
0: Yeah, I I do love the dabrowski Ostapenko team, and I think there's going to be a great comfort level and dynamic with those two, given that Ostapenko, she won her major, major title, obviously, at the French Open three years ago. And now you think about her firepower from the baseline and only worrying about really having to manage half the court, playing her big baseline offense, having Gabby take care of everything at the net because she's so strong at net. I think they could be a major threat. Uh, to potentially win. They're definitely a contender here, I think. Um, some other big storylines. I mean, we've, we've talked about Serena and the push for 24. If if I'm probably ranking Grand Slams in terms of opportunity for Serena to get a 24th, I think the French Open would likely be at the bottom of the list, to be honest. U.S. Open in would probably be at the top in terms of hardcore play. But she still has won this major three times, and uh, she did win it in 2015. And I go back to last year and when she went out that took an incredible performance from Sophia Kennan. And we know of course, uh, what, what Kennan's turned out to be a great major champion in her own right. So I I don't think Serena is a favorite here, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's contending and maybe pushing towards quarterfinals semis uh, again, just like she did at the U S open.
2: Yeah. I mean, if not a favorite, she's still going to be in that top five or six, you know, I, to be honest for me, anyhow. And, um, you know, the good news for us tennis fans is we get another grand slam two weeks after the U.S. Open, which is awesome. Yeah. And that's also good news for Serena because she gets to get right back at it and not have this big gap of months. I mean, normally after the U.S. Open, you'd have to wait, what, four or five months until you're back going for that next slam. And for Serena to get this, you know, new and and and, and, and quick opportunity, sorry, to go for number 24 again, I think is, is really good for her. And and maybe the fact that, like you said, this is the slam where she's the least likely for us to believe she's got uh, the chance to do it. Maybe that works to her favor, that people are going to let their guard down just somewhat against Serena, knowing that there is a little vulnerability there that didn't exist previously. And, uh, and we'll see what happens. But when I look at the draw, it isn't an easy draw when you've got Azarenka looming once again in the uh, round of 16. Yeah. And then potentially Alina Svitolina, who just won in Strasbourg, as a potential quarterfinal opponent. And uh, Svitolina, of course, who surprised uh, Serena at the Olympics years ago, they haven't faced each other since Serena's come back from her um, uh, mat leave. And uh, I know Svitolina, when I spoke with her a couple of years ago in New York, is just relishing the opportunity to play her again. So I'm not a huge fan of how the draw is looking for Serena. But uh, that being said, if she ended up with the, the title, I don't think anyone would say, you know, whoa, total shocker either.
0: That's true. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Spitalina in that title in Strasbourg because she right now feels like one of those like forgotten top 10 players. She hasn't really been on our radar for, for the past little while. And of course, she didn't really do anything at the U.S. Open. And I, I think said, had some hard court struggles just in the return from the pandemic. Um, but when she is on, uh, you know, we have seen her in a grand slam semifinal before. She does have a nice comfort on clay. Do you put her maybe on the short list of, of players who could win this? Despite the... I do, yeah, yeah, I do. I don't. I don't put her in my top
2: like three or four, but right. I put her in that that next tier for sure. And you know, to contrast her with another top ten player who hasn't won a slam in Carolina Pliskova, I, I don't see Carolina Pliskova ending up with a slam, to be honest. And that's just my opinion. And I'd be happy if I'm proven wrong. But I just I don't see it. Uh, perhaps mentally um you know being able to do that at this point and and she is getting a little bit older and the opportunities she's just not seizing the day I do see Svitolina still being possible and she's 26 years old she's still got a little bit more time and uh and she can be a little bit streaky and having that tournament win coming in in Strasbourg is obviously something that that bodes well for for Svitolina um who are some other players you've got on your shortlist Ben?
0: Um, Well, look, Garbina Muguruza, I thought, played incredibly well uh, in Rome in this lead-up tournament. She pushed Simona Howell up to three sets. Great win against Victoria Azarenka. It looked like vintage Muguruza, which, of course, we saw very little of 2018-2019, but she did make the Australian Open final, and I I think she is comfort you know comfortable enough on the clay court surface she's won here in 2016 uh, that if she can navigate through her first few matches i look at her draw i don't really see someone who's a major threat on clay i know jennifer brady's been playing great tennis but i i just don't trust those hard-hitting american players to always get it done on clay so i think if Muguru, that can work her way through that first week comfortably. Um, she is definitely on my short list of, of potential players who could win this slam. Um, other players that I'm looking at, I wonder if Petra Kvitova can do something here. I like her uh, slate of the draw as well. I think she can get through her first few matches pretty handily. Dodin, I think she cruises in the first match. And uh, again, another power player who We're used to seeing her success on maybe faster courts, but if we are talking about the conditions and the state of the ball, maybe favoring players who play very, very heavy spin, Kavita uh, can rope it hard, like hard flat balls and plays big, fast tennis. So I wonder if that could aid her game style here, perhaps.
2: Um, Absolutely. And um, in terms of some names I'm looking at that, I wouldn't call dark horses, obviously, because there are a couple of seeded names, but Elena Ribikina, who made the finals in Strasbourg against Fidelina, and she's made five WTA finals this year, which is remarkable considering how little tennis has actually been played. Uh, and she's got a nice section of the draw where she could come up against uh, Kennan or Donna Vekic in the round of 16. Another, neither of those two players has been playing particularly well lately. So uh, I like that draw for Ribikina. And um, also, I mean, let's not forget Marquetta Vondrazova, who made the finals in the 2019 edition, has been pretty quiet since then, coming back from injury and, and missing some time. But she's back to a familiar place. Um, and then, you know, not as a dark horse to win the tournament, but just I wouldn't be surprised if some French players had a pretty decent tournament. Caroline Garcia just knocked out Annette Conteve, uh this she's morning. That. Um, and I saw that as a matchup that I could totally see her winning, as she has shown some improvements lately. And then even someone like Elise Cornet or Kristina Mladenovic, not to go deep, but to cause potentially a couple upsets. Um, although they won't have the full French crowd behind them. I don't know what it'll be like with only a 1,000 players there, which will make it different from the U.S. Open, right? Having an empty stadium now versus, you know, now having at least some fans in there. Although in a big, huge stadium like Chatrier, it's going to sound kind of funny with it only filled to, what, 10%? Or, uh, or 15% capacity. Uh, but the French players, you know, who knows? Uh, they could cause a little bit of a ruckus. And we haven't mentioned yet, and I'd like to think we're just leaving the best for last, but, I mean, come on, who's the consensus favorite here, right? It's...
0: Has to be Simona Halep. Has to be Simona Halep. And she's only played... Uh, Two events since this COVID-19 return, both on clay, and she's won both of them. I I mean, she won in Prague. I I know that draw, probably the crop of players wasn't as strong, but she won the premiere in in Rome. And uh, the the signature win, I think, was over Muguruza in three sets. And then Karolina Pliskova uh, health-wise kind of gave out in the final. But Simona Halep, I I think, is the best clay court player we have uh, in the world on the women's side. You look at her career three French Open finals, the title in 2018, nine career titles on the surface. This is definitely a a spot where she's most comfortable. I don't know. I I can't really get a gauge on how conditions are either going to favor her or hinder her. It's, It's kind of tough to say because she counter punches brilliantly. She moves across the court brilliantly, but she does like to dictate points as well at times. So, it, you you kind of have an interesting balance where she's going to be very difficult to hit off the court, but if she wants to take control, maybe she'll have a little trouble too. She actually worked her way through a, a bit of a challenging first-round match in Sarah ceribe 's Tormo, and she was actually down 4-2 in that first set and then runs off, wins uh, the next 10 games to advance to the second round. She's definitely my favorite, and if, if I'm picking someone to win it, it's Simona Halep.
2: Yeah, and when you've won 14 or now 15 straight matches, you've got to be feeling pretty good about life. And when you've won a grand slam at this very event, you know, she, I just feel like once you've got a slam and she's got two of them now, cause she won at Wimbledon as well. That's just got to take such an edge off when you're walking into a major like this, knowing you've done it before, knowing you're capable and, and upping that fear factor amongst the other players um, as well. So to wrap up our our women's preview, yeah, we got to hand it to Simona Halep as the, the, I want to say the overwhelming favorite, but the, the big favorite, if, if that means any different. Yep. Uh, you know, between the two there. On the men's side, uh, we got lots of Canadian content, but we don't have Milos Raonic who pulled out. And um, I don't know if that's surprising or, or not. I mean, he hasn't necessarily played the French as regularly often, but um, uh, what do you want to say about Milos being uh, being out this time here?
0: Yeah, I, I actually did think he was going to play it this year, but uh, if there's one grand slam that Milos has kind of consistently missed through the bulk of his career it has been the French Open and he hadn't played since uh, I believe 2017 was the last time he actually played the tournament so we're going now on three consecutive years Rangel has not played the French Open I thought he certainly went through the hard court season perfectly healthy the Western and Southern Open finals and then of course The U.S. Open was much shorter-lived than I I think we expected, losing to Bashik Pospisil. So I I thought he was going to go to the clay court season feeling fine. Maybe he tweaked something slightly in the leg, didn't want to take any kind of risks. Maybe he hates the conditions. Who knows? Maybe uh, he he didn't really see a great opportunity uh, for himself to do much damage on on clay. I I think it's just pretty understood amongst Canadian tennis fans and and tennis pundits alike that Milos Raonic – is not really a threat on the clay court surface. So if we're looking for him to contend at a grand slam, we're looking outside of Roland Garros and at the other three.
2: Maybe he was worried about what the weather conditions would have done to that hair that he was sporting in New York. Could
0: you imagine what that might look like? My goodness. Yeah, He just couldn't get it under control. That's true. That could, have, uh, that could have played a factor. At the same time, you know, a couple of our key Canadians, I think they are solid on the clay. Felix Ogiel-Easim, to me, is a great clay court player. We, we saw it at the challenger level, winning challenger titles on clay. And then a few of his ATP finals, Rio Open on clay, when he did that last year, he was the youngest player to ever do that, 18 years of age. So to me, he's a threat. You have to think Denis Shapovalov is coming here with a lot of confidence. He lost in the quarterfinals of Rome. but. I think seeing number 10 next to his name in the world cracking that milestone of the rankings is huge. And uh, just the second Canadian man to ever do so uh, next to Milos Ranic. So Ranic is the trailblazer for these guys. He's not there, uh, but now it's up to Dennis and and Felix to carry the reins. And they did that so well at the U.S. Open. Uh, That gives me confidence. I think we're going to see at least one of these two guys um, knocking on the door making the second week.
2: Yeah. And, you know, normally for a clay court event, I'd say, OK, Felix is the guy that I'd, um, you know, back in terms of his clay court prowess. But he doesn't seem to have the the same swagger lately. He's gone uh, one and two, I believe, on the surface leading in. So it's not like he's coming in with a ton of momentum. He did make the second week of a major for the first time in New York. So that was fantastic, yeah. but had a humbling experience those last two sets against Dominic Team, who just took him to town um, 6-1 and 6-1 we got to give Dennis some credit here because uh, he's turned himself into a solid clay court player. He's made now two masters, 1000 semifinals on clay in his career. And Dennis, I feel like over the years he's accomplished so many great things. And yet more often than not, I feel like media members and even Canadian tennis fans are so impatient with him as if he should be hurrying up and having more success quicker. But I mean, look at all he's done so far and, now, this latest accomplishment of making the top 10 only at the age of, what is he, 21, 20s?
0: 21.
2: He's just a kid, right? So, I, I think it's remarkable. And the fact that he's doing it on the clay, too. And, I mean, when we spoke to Steven Diaz earlier, he mentioned how there really isn't a clay court specialist anymore. And and the tour is kind of evened out in terms of what you can do on all surfaces. And Dennis is, is definitely a... Testament to that. I mean, gone are the days of the Sergi Brugueras, the Albert Costas, Gaston Gaudios mm. type of players and winners at the French. So yeah, I think you put Dennis in that, not the top few that we're going to discuss in a moment, but definitely someone who's going to be threatening and is playing with a ton of game right now. So, you know, kudos to, to him and uh, you know, for Felix, hopefully things can turn around because he does have a history of playing well on clay as well. Um, and then we shouldn't forget uh, Vashik is in there as well. Although he's got a pretty nasty draw, as it seems like he always has in his Grand Slam appearances lately.
0: Yeah, very tough draw against Matteo Berrettini of Italy, who's also playing pretty good tennis right now. Uh, Look, Vashik as well, he has never found the clay court success. He hasn't found the recipe to, to deliver here in the past. He hasn't won a match at the French Open before. Um I wish you got a friendlier draw because you feel like the Vashik of today is playing the best tennis of his entire career. So if there was any year to do it, to sneak a win at Roland Garros, it would be this year, but you're slated against the ninth seed and Matteo Berrettini. I think he's going to be in very, very tough. If he has an unbelievable serving day, um, maybe he has a chance. I just think he's going to have trouble uh, dictating on his terms the way he can on a hard court or or even at Wimbledon uh, on the clay court surface. But, that takes nothing away from the fact that Vashik has had an incredible, uh, you know, year and a half since making his return from an injury.
2: Yeah, it's been absolutely remarkable. He's up to number seventy-two now, and that I can only see climbing as he gets more tournaments uh, ahead of him. Uh, Vashik is playing in doubles. He's reunited with Jack Sox. so the Wimbledon uh, winners from uh, years ago are together. And unfortunately for us, as Canadian uh, tennis uh, fans and uh, and a Canadian podcast, we got Vashik up against Denis Shapovalov in the first round and his partner, Rohan Bopana. So that's going to be, that's a heck of a first round doubles tilt because yeah. Dennis and Rohan have played quite a bit together and have a good chemistry there. And and Rohan obviously who won the mixed French open with Gabby a few years ago, he's good on clay. And then Pospisil and Sock reunited. I know Jack Sock hasn't been doing much in, in singles, although he did finally get a win uh, not too long ago, but them reunited as a doubles team. They're a good doubles tandem as well. So this is a, a pretty epic first round match and, and unfortunate for Canadian fans that one of those tandems has to bow out early. Uh, and to wrap up the Canadian men before we look at the bigger field here, uh, Peter Polanski and Braden Schnur both fell in qualifying. Polanski in his first round match, Schnur made it to the second round of qualities, but ultimately uh, neither of them could join Steven Diaz to, uh, to proceed in Paris.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's, that's true. So uh, we'll stake our uh, hope in, in Steven Diaz for a, a tough first-round match against Mackenzie McDonald. We'll see how that goes. Um, I, I guess looking at the main storylines for, for the men's field, I, I assume it has to be Rafa Nadal pushing not just for number 13 uh, here at Roland Garros, but the potential chance to tie Roger Federer, of course, in that all-time single slam record of 20. So it is a huge opportunity, no doubt, uh, people think he could potentially be vulnerable here though. He lost in Rome to Diego Schwartzman who played a terrific match in the terrific tournament. And the way the draw has shaped up, we have Dominic Thiem on Nadal's half on that lower half of the draw. So for Novak Djokovic, for example, he won't have to go through a player like Thiem to get to the final. Whereas you look at a, a path for Nadal, is he going to have to beat Thiem and Djokovic to, to take the trophy home? That feels like a very tall order.
2: Look, if this was best of three, I would definitely have more concerns for Rafa because I think it would be uh, much more possible for for someone to take him out in an environment that he's not used to, not having the full stadium, not having the full stands that are behind him, dealing with new balls from Wilson that he's already griping about and not happy about, uh, playing at this time of year, playing without his usual repertoire of clay court events that, uh, that he leads in with. So for all those reasons, if it was a best of three, I would have, yeah, some justifiable concerns that he could... Not go out early, but certainly against a tricky player in the quarters uh, or semis, you know, uh, or even round of 16, depending. But it's best of five. Like you said, he's got so much on the line. He's going to tie Roger, which you know he's super hungry to do. If he wins the event, it'll be his hundredth. He'll cap it off with his hundredth career win at Roland Garros. Um, and, um, and and when you're 93-2 and two at a tournament lifetime, uh, you know, you're feeling pretty good as well. So best of five, he's an absolute beast. Um, and yeah, I mean, he is going to have to potentially, um, you know, have some challenges and it might be a little trickier than usual, but I I still see him getting to those late stages of this draw. Um, but there are some players that he's going to have to contend with that will be trickier at that stage, a Dominic team, a Novak, uh, Djokovic, of course, in, in the finals. And let's talk about those two guys. First of all, what does the U S open mean for, you know, what happened at the open? What does that mean for Novak? and what does that mean for team?
0: Yeah, well, I'll start with Novak because I do have to give him a lot of credit for mentally kind of flushing out what happened at Flushing Meadows, uh, no pun intended, uh, but sort of just to take that disaster and so promptly move on and, and go to a Masters 1000 in Rome and capture a huge title, which was actually his 36th Masters of his career, which puts him first all time. So for him to bounce back that quickly, you look at his record in 2020, 31 and one, that's just a sterling record. And I think probably people view the loss as not even a real loss. Nobody's I don't acting, count it. You know, Carreño Busta hadn't even won a set against him in that match yet. I, I mean, maybe he could have taken the first set, but I don't think anybody in their right mind was thinking Carreño Busta was winning that match had it played out. And I, I think people just kind of viewed the U S open as a lost opportunity. Again away opportunity for Novak Djokovic so I think his his confidence is still sky high I think of course he's the favorite on the top half to get to the final I'll be surprised if somebody stops him um, I think it's it's going to take in you know otherworldly performance from somebody like uh, I'm, I'm not really sold on Medvedev yet on clay Andre Rublev, I wonder if he comes in with some confidence because he just won this this impressive title in Hamburg, beat Tsitsipas in the finals, and he's playing great tennis and actually was playing great tennis at the front end of 2020. So I think he could pose a threat. My issue with Dominic Team here, um, look, he should be certainly confident from that U.S. Open win uh, and, and getting his first major title. And if we were to predict where is he going to win his first major title, we probably would have said Roland Garros, but this is a brutal draw. I mean, Terrible,
2: isn't it? It's just absolutely terrible. From the get-go, it's terrible, and, yeah. and it doesn't ease up for him either. No. Um, uh, starting with Chilich, uh, I mean, Opelka and, and Rude. I mean, I don't see them taking him out, but that's definitely you know, not the type of matches you maybe want to start with. Right. But then it gets tough. You're either going to get Felix or Stan Vavrinka, then maybe a Molfis or a Schwartzmann. And then you got to go through probably Nadal and Djokovic to win the title. So that's uh, that's all kinds of awful for Dominic Team.
0: Yeah, that just seems like an impossible prospect. We talk about how difficult it is to beat one of the big three, especially at a Grand Slam. Is it really conceivable that he beats both to win a Grand Slam title? So I don't think that's possible. I think the only way Dominic Team wins this title is if somebody takes out Novak Djokovic on the top half. I, I mm-hmm. think that's the only scenario, or If Nadal were to somehow bow out early, I just don't see anybody who could stop Nadal from getting to the semifinal. People have pointed out Fabio Fanini. Fabio Fanini has been a thorn in Nadal's side at times in his career. I believe he has five career wins, but we haven't seen any form from Fabio at all uh, in 2020. So, And best of five. I don't really see that happening. Um, So I'd be very surprised if Dominic team was able to win this title.
2: Yeah, you know what I want to say? I mean, you summed it up pretty good there for Djokovic and for Dominic team. so I don't have much to add on either of those two. But uh, just when I'm looking at the draw here, I'm looking at the draw and feeling different about it now than I used to. Uh, And I don't know if it's because only two of the big three are there, but I think basically it's because of what happened in New York. And although Rafa wasn't there and although Djokovic beat himself, it allowed some of these guys to go deeper than they normally would have, to have their first moments, Zverev's first Grand Slam final, team's first Grand Slam win. And I think now when I look at this draw, I see things being a lot more even. And I don't know if this is the turning point, the transition point where we see the big three and the, the next gen or the under 30 generation kind of meeting each other on equal footing or more equal footing. And it's going to happen at some point due to age or deteriorating skills or increasing skills from the young guys. But when I look at the draw that I filled out here and I look at the names like Medvedev, Rublev, Berrettini, Sisi Pass, I don't look at them anymore as next gen. I look at them as being you know, mainstream top 10 presences and with good reason. And I think that U.S. Open, despite the lack of the big three um, and the loss of Djokovic earlier on, I think that tournament may signal that turning point and mentally give the rest of that field that confidence that they certainly belong. And maybe we're going to see less domination and more kind of back and forth between these young guns and the uh, the established top guys who have been hoarding all the majors this year. And I hope that we do because I think that'll be really exciting. That'll be really awesome. Jimmy Connors told us when we spoke with him a week or so ago, he wants to see it, um, you know, have those two groups meet on even footing and have that time in both their respective careers to have some great matches to excite tennis fans Pass the torch, not just kind of drop the torch, if you will.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a a great point. Uh, I think self-belief for this next gen crop, um, was so, so important to believe they could win a major title, believe they could win a Grand Slam. And, of course, team is a, a bit older than that next generation when you're talking about the Zverevs and the Tsitsipas and Rublevs. And,
2: but he's under 30.
0: And Medvedevs, but he's, he's well under 30. And I, I think it was huge for just um, that opportunity to see some one of them hoist that major trophy that, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot more confidence from that camp um, so Pass feels like a slightly forgotten entity right now because he he coughed up a U.S. Open match to Borna Chorich blowing all those match points, um, which was disappointing. Um, but I, I think he's bounced back nicely on clay as well, making the final in Hamburg. Yeah, you know what? I I think this is a great opportunity for all those crops of guys, and I would love to see one of them really, really push and and dig in and give Novak or Nadal a a run for their money in a best-of-five environment. And uh, maybe when the conditions aren't perfect for Rafa, maybe if Novak isn't loving the way the ball is coming off his strings, this is the time to do it too.
2: Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, I have to say this is the first time in in years, I feel like, where I'm looking at the men's draw and the women's draw – And I've got equal anticipation for both of them.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's great. Um, I I do think, you know, we have to pay. If if I'm picking someone to win this title, I've just probably learned my lesson maybe trying one time going off the cuff. Just don't pick against Rafael Nadal at the French. Uh, But I think this is the most vulnerable he has been probably since uh, 2015 when he didn't win it. Of course, 2016, he also got injured there. So this is the most vulnerable he's been here in a while.
2: Yeah, well, we'll be checking back in with everybody in a week's time to sort of see midway how things are looking. And uh, before we wrap up this episode, Ben, we've got, uh, and it's been a while, but we've got a, a great giveaway um, thanks to Tennis Canada, who were, uh, you know, back in the office and able to mail out some swag to our listeners. And it's a signed tennis ball by one of the uh, most on-fire players on the women's circuit right now. I'll, I'll let you take it away and, and tell our listeners what's, uh, what we've got for them this week.
0: Yeah, on fire is a perfect description. Uh, We have a signed tennis ball from Victoria Azarenka who course, is just coming off a finals run at Flushing Meadows and a former Grand Slam champion in her own right, playing some of the best tennis of her career. So feels like a perfect opportunity to give away a signed ball from Vika. And uh, for a chance to get in on the draw, you simply have to retweet our episodes or retweet, share uh, as much as you can. We will enter you into the draw, and then we will announce the winner of the Victoria Azarenka signed tennis ball uh, next week
2: so there you have it Uh, get your names in get those retweets out and uh, we'll be happy to mail that to you hey guys enjoy the start of the last Grand Slam of 2020 the French Open which still feels weird to say that together Uh, but enjoy the clay court tennis enjoy the Grand Slam action and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you guys
1: again next week